first published scientific paper at 15, doctorate in theoretical physics from Caltech by 20, MacArthur Genius Grant at 21, creator of Mathematica, creator of a programming language designed to bring humans ever closer to knowledge representations stored in computers, author of numerous books, CEO. The list goes on and I simply can't do it justice in a teaser intro to a podcast. Today's guest, Dr. Stephen Wolfram, has a list of accomplishments a mile long that reflect a long career at the center of in the words of one of his most famous books, A New Kind of Science, a science with computation at its heart, a science that powers much of our modern world. Practically speaking, his approach has birthed the company of 800 plus employees working on groundbreaking tools like Mathematica, Wolfram Alpha, and the Wolfram Language. Stay tuned as you're not going to want to miss this episode as we sync up with Stephen Wolfram. You're listening to the Developmentor Podcast, hosted by Grant Ingersoll. We have one goal on the show, to help you build a successful career in tech, no matter where you're from or where you're going. We do this by showcasing interesting people working across a variety of roles in tech and deep dive into their why. If you want to learn more, please visit our website at developmentor.com or follow us on Twitter at developmentor. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Great to have you here. Thanks. Yeah, and I think you know we were chit-chatting offline. I, I believe we met back in 2010, so it's it's great to catch up with you. And I'm really looking forward to diving in with you here on your life and career. Sounds good. Yeah, and so you know, I mean, much of the what of your early years, I think, has been covered in the intro and on your website. And I, I listened to a really great interview you did with Guy Kawasaki there. So I want to just start off kind of simply with uh, the what inspired you to get into physics and what was it like in those early years, especially being younger than many of your classmates? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I got interested in physics because I was a kid growing up in England in the 1960s and so on. And uh, the thing that seemed like the shiniest, most exciting thing about the future was space and spacecraft and all that kind of thing. You know, I was the stay up late at night to watch the moon landing kind of kid when I was what must be nine years old then. And uh, I sort of got really into how does spacecraft work and so on. And that quickly became a how do they really work? And that was, oh, I got to understand the physics of how these things work. And then, well, I guess I just started reading books and I by the time I was probably 11 years old or something, I was reading, you know, the college physics textbooks and so on. In retrospect, maybe it was like, oh, you can't read a college physics textbook. You're only 11 years old. But nobody told me that. And, you know, I just get the book, you start reading it. And, you know, maybe they're pieces you don't understand. But if you're motivated enough about it, you know, you can gradually fill in the pieces. You know, in, in today's world, it's kind of unfair that I had to do this when things were so difficult. I mean, in today's world, if there's something, you don't know what that word means. You just type it into the web. And, you know, you've immediately got an explanation right there on the web. That wasn't the case back when I was a kid. It was like one book, find another book, find another book. It was kind of a much more hunting for information. I got really interested in physics, sort of understanding everything about physics. And it was at a time when particle physics was having kind of a golden age. I mean, it's kind of like machine learning or blockchain or something as today. Particle physics was in by then the, the early 1970s. Uh, there was a particular discovery that got made in particle physics in 1974. You know, how does this work? It's a big mystery. And I was like, well, I know a certain amount about physics. I'm really interested in knowing the answer to this. Let me go and try and figure it out. So that kind of got me into doing sort of research about physics. And I was 14 years old then. And I, I think mostly I just was like, okay, I can figure stuff out. So let me go and try and figure it out. And I, I, then I started by the time I was 15 or so, I started interacting a bit with the grown-up physicists, so to speak. And yeah, it was totally weird. I was 15. They were 35 or something. The area of common interest was physics. The kind of life and times were completely different. For me now, it's a strange thing because many of the people that I sort of met when I was 15, 16 years old, they're 20 years older than me. They're in the very ends of their careers, so to speak. They often spent the whole of their careers doing physics, just like they had when I first met them. I think the one thing that 
that happened was because I first met them when I was like 15 or something, I was a brash, energetic 15-year-old, and that became their image of me forever. Even when I was, you know, 50 years old, more, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, I was still, you know, the brash kid that they first met in, you know, 1975 or something. I mean, I was really interested in doing physics, and I think I got pretty technically good at doing things. The sort of social dynamic of just do stuff, even though you're different from and maybe have slightly different motivations from people around you, I think it takes a certain degree of resolve to do that. Things would happen. I mean, in academia, academia is really like the Wild West, or at least my image of what the Wild West must have been like. You know, there's a lot of sort of uh, thievery and skullduggery and so on that goes on. Not not the way you might imagine it would be, but it's, it's actually much worse than business in terms of bad behavior and so on and people. And, you know, when you're 17 years old and, you know, people steal something that you wrote some paper about or whatever else, you kind of grow up fast, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, that must be kind of surreal for a 17-year-old to feel like, you know, somebody who's perhaps even you look up to in the field is all of a sudden, in your words, you know, maybe plagiarizing or whatever. So I imagine that's pretty surreal lesson to be learning out of as a 17-year-old. It was strange because, you know, like there was a chap who was um, twice my age, actually, so I must have been 34 at that time. You know, I interacted with him about physics, and it's like, uh, you know, I remember some problem he was working on or something, and I was like, well, you know, I think the answer is blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you know, okay, I can figure this out to some extent. I wasn't, didn't think it was a particularly big deal. Many years later, I learned that that was a, a sort of a a tremendously sort of existential moment for this person because he'd been like, oh my God, there's this person half my age who can figure this stuff out, you know, in a few moments that took me a long time. The one funny part about that story in a sense, and you know, it's not a happy story because although I didn't know that was sort of what had happened until several years later, but now I've been saying as I get older, eventually that's going to happen to me. I really enjoy working with a bunch of younger people on this physics project I've been working on recently, uh, a couple of younger people who are really smart. And uh, yeah, they can figure stuff out pretty fast. And um, I still think I managed to have my moments, but it's a thing that, uh, you know, I built this thing called Wolfram Language over the course of the last 30 years. And like one of my kids is probably about twice as fast a programmer in Wolfram Language than I am. So that's kind of an interesting dynamic as well. Well, standing on the shoulder of giants in many ways, right? I mean, and that is that is in many ways progress. You mentioned in there, Stephen, you know, this business versus academia. And, you know, one of the things I love on this show is when people pivot. I mean, and for you, you know, by all accounts, you're on this academic track, right? I mean, PhD, et cetera, like you're doing deep research on fundamental problems in physics. And then you go and start a commercial company. And, you know, so I'd love to hear kind of the why behind and what those early years of starting your company were like. Well, so of course, the story is a little bit complicated. So I got my PhD when I was 20, which was just as well, because I probably wouldn't have had the patience to keep doing that whole academic thing that much longer. But uh, then I was uh, uh, on the faculty at Caltech. In fact, right after I got my PhD, literally within weeks after I got my PhD, I was like, okay, you know, I'd had a goal since I was like 10 years old to be a physicist. And now I sort of was a physicist. And so it's like, okay, what am I going to do next? And the thing I decided was, well, I really need to have sort of the best possible tools to be able to be a sort of effective in being a physicist or whatever as possible. And that translated into, I got to build this big computer system. And so I started building this thing, you know, that was 1979. It was the world of computing was a lot more primitive than it is today. I mean, I remember, you know, I was like, I better learn computer science. Let me go to the Caltech bookstore and go buy sort of all the books on computer science on the shelf. It was about two linear feet or something of books. And you go off and read them over the weekend type thing. There was this newfangled language called C that was like, okay, that's going to be the implementation language for this system. So I built this computer system, and that was sort of the first time I'd really kind of managed a team doing things. Uh, I built the system, and then it was like, okay, what are we going to do with this system? I built it primarily because I wanted to have a really good tool, but I perfectly well knew that it was something that would be useful to lots of other people as well. And so my kind of plan A was uh, go and, you know, license it through the university and get people to use it and so on. And that really didn't work because the university sort of didn't know at that time how to do that. 
And they were like, well, why don't you just go start your own company? So I did. And at that time, that was, you know, I was 21 or so years old. And it was like, okay, how do I start a company? I've never done anything like that. You know, I've been an academic kid doing physics. I remember I went to the library and thought I should go find the books on how to start a company. I didn't get through very many pages. I think I got through a book about um, management, which talked about why the manager's desk should be higher on a higher thing than the employee sitting in front of the desk. <laughs> this is crazy. I know more than that already, so I'm not, I'm not going to read that. But in starting that company, I made a whole bunch of mistakes. I mean, like one mistake was I thought, I don't know how to start a company. Let me go find a CEO who can run this company for me and I will you know, provide the technology and so on. I, so I found a guy who was actually about twice my age at that time, who was you know, well pedigreed and, and so on. And uh, you know, he brought in some piece of team, I brought in some piece of team, started this company. You know, we got venture capital, this was uh, probably in 1982 or so. So again, venture capital was somewhat different, like it was all in New York, New York at that time, it wasn't yet Bay Area and so on. And you know, start this company. It was interesting for me because I kept on feeling like, well, common sense says we should do this. And the people I brought in to run it said, no, 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 we should do that instead. You know, so I would watch this. And after a while, it was like, you know, this is getting very frustrating because I keep on being right. And I didn't think I knew anything about it. I mean, it was just like common sense says, oh, like one of the issues back then was software company, right? But our software wouldn't run on the typical workstation computer. It needed too much memory. So there was some whole, oh, let's build a workstation which has more memory and can deal with that. And it's like, no, that's a bad idea. You know, we're a software company. There are companies, you know, I'd already seen, I think I dropped in at Stanford and I run into this guy called Andy Bechtelsheim who showed me this thing in a cardboard box that was a Stanford University network computer that later became Sun and Sun Microsystems and so on. Now I knew, you know, people were working on hardware stuff and we didn't know anything about it. And it was just the wrong thing for the company to be doing. And of course, it was the wrong thing for the company to be doing. I mean, nowadays, one could plainly see that. But, you know, there kept on being these kind of decisions. Where, and I didn't see myself, never really seen myself as a business person, so to speak. You know, I've always primarily seen myself as sort of an intellectual figure things out kind of person. But the thing that was kind of a critical realization was, you know, my intellectual figure things out sort of methods and personality actually weren't a terrible fit for figuring out things about companies as well. I mean, figuring out things about physics, the content is different, but quite a lot of the strategy of figuring things out is not that different, at least in my experience, from the strategy of figuring things out about, you know, what should the company do and so on. I kind of learned that from that company, I fairly quickly kind of peeled off because I got very frustrated with like, we're not doing the right things and I'm not really interested in this. I mean, many years later, the company did a very undistinguished IPO, so sort of had a happy ending in some sense. But I kind of went back to doing sort of basic research together with a hobby of doing strategy consulting for tech companies, which are very interesting. I suppose it was my sort of business school-like experience or something. I think I gave people some pretty good advice. They only sometimes took it, but I think it was pretty good. By the mid-80s, I developed this area of science that sort of now goes by the name of complexity theory. And I had been sort of trying to build up that area of science. Very different activity, building up an area of science from building a company. In many ways, one that I think I'm less suitable for. I like the intellectual side of it, but the kind of uh, human community organizing side of it, it's a company. We've got plans. We've got, you know, et cetera, rather than it's a community and sort of everybody should do the right thing kind of thing. My original plan had been to do this science, I will organize a bunch of other people to do it. I quickly realized that sort of a better plan B is I like doing the science myself. Let me give myself the best tools and the best environment and try and, you know, energetically do the science myself. And so that led me to start my current company in 1986, uh, Wolfram Research. I made many fewer mistakes second time around. I mean, it really helped to have, to have done one before. You know, second time around, I was the CEO. We didn't have any investors. We've never had any investors. I've sort of bootstrapped the company. You know, I didn't expect that um, 34 years later, I'd still be running the same company. I was kind of imagining I had a sort of five or 10 year time horizon. That's how I came to start the company. And in terms of the type of thinking and the, the sort of 
academia versus the commercial world. I mean, I, I think I'm probably not that suitable to be an academic because, you know, I've really never worked for anybody in my life in some sense. You know, as a, as a professor, you don't really kind of really work for anybody. And I think that as you kind of ascend the academic system, there's much more of, well, you're part of this organization and it has all of its structure and you're a cog in that big machine. And I'm like, why are we doing it this way? There's a much better way to do it. Well, because that's the way the university works. Hmm. Well, okay, not my thing. Well, and these days too, I mean, you know, I think many students go in with this perhaps illusion that you're going to do all this groundbreaking things. And in many ways, a lot of it is kind of incrementalism on top of your advisor's research, et cetera, or within the constraints of the lab that you're in. I think the point with research at universities and so on, and, and for example, science in general, is most of science is incremental. And there are these rare moments when fields of science, usually because they invent some new methodology or something, have this sort of uh, explosion of activity and where you know, there's tons of low-hanging fruit to be picked. I was lucky enough to be involved in particle physics in the late 1970s when that was happening there. And that meant you know, stuff that I did when I was a teenager still gets used today because I was in the right place at the right time to be the person who happened to have that juicy piece of fruit right in front of them to pick, so to speak. There's some strategy in picking areas of science which are sort of ready to be in this kind of... Uh, you know, explosion of activity. But, you know, the vast majority of, of science and, and academic work is quite incremental. It's something where, you know, people who come in saying, I'm going to discover the fundamental theory of physics, I'm going to do whatever. You know, I remember when I was at Caltech, I remember it's sort of an unfortunate thing that pretty much any physics graduate student who came in with that goal was going to fail. And it was people who was like, well, I'm going to work on this particle physics experiment and I'm going to be stringing wires and I'm going to be making detectors work well and so on. That was fine. They were going to do fine. But the people who had too high an expectation of, you know, we're going to change the world of this field because the system is not built to deal with that kind of thing. I mean, the other thing to understand about research is that the most important thing, if you want to be a really successful researcher, is to have the right strategy about what to research. In other words, people might think the most important thing is the mechanics of how good you are at the technical aspects of what you're doing, and you have to have a certain level of capability there, and you have to have a lot of sort of tenacity and follow through. But the most important determiner is, what are you going to research? What, what's the strategy of what you're going to do? That's a skill that isn't really taught as you go through the educational system there's a little bit of luck involved, although I think very, very often people are making their own luck, so to speak. In other words, they're picking the area where things are likely to go well. Yeah, the luck is often further upstream and that you happen to you know, be in a position to be able to then go do that. I'm curious, Stephen, you know, life is full of inflection points. You brought us up to like 1986, 87, the starting of Wolfram Research. You've been at the helm for 30 plus years. You know, reflecting back on that, what are some of the key moments, the key wins, the key losses that have helped shape you and your company in, in those years since, you know, maybe hit at three or four highlights? Look, with respect to the company, it's been a pretty linear process. The company, its personality today is very similar to its personality at the beginning. It's much better organized than it was at the beginning. But basically, it's a company where, you know, we're figuring out new stuff all the time. And that's been the personality of the company throughout its history. Now, there's a little bit more detail to fill in, actually. So, so back at the beginning, you know, we brought out the first version of Mathematica in, in 1988. It was very successful. You know, companies started growing rapidly. Uh, you know, got to maybe 150 employees or something. And I was like, this is great. I can get all these ideas implemented, right? I got all these ideas. We're going to get them implemented. And I realized sometime in, in 1991, I realized the rate at which I'm generating ideas is far too high to be absorbed by a company of 150 people. And moreover, we don't even have the management structures. Even if we got more people, we don't really have the management structures to absorb this sort of fire hose of ideas. So I kind of decided I'm going to you know, throttle back. I was really interested in working on a basic science project. 
And you know that had been sort of one of my motivations for starting the company and building the software in the first place. I said, I'm going to go off and do that. I'm going to do, you know, be a part-time CEO. And I, the company uh, headquarters in Illinois, I moved to California. I became a remote CEO. You know, I started using, actually, I was using web conferencing very, very soon thereafter. But, uh, and I've been a remote CEO ever since 1991. I, you know, I worked on the science project. It was supposed to be a one-year project. It ended up being a 10-year project. But what happened is the company, during those years, it kind of grew up. It got better organized. It went through those ideas at a certain rate. I mean, I think maybe five years ago now, we finally finished completely the 1991 to-do list. Took a little longer than expected, but um, it's also great that we're in a business where that actually makes sense, where it's not like, oh, we got a different thing to do next week type thing. So then it was interesting for me because after that 10-year period, I kind of was then, I jumped really back into the company. And it was sort of almost like a restart. For the company, it was a little bit of a restart too, because the company had grown up. It had gotten quite good at doing what it did, so to speak, but I wanted it to do more. And so there was sort of the challenge of how do you take a company that is doing one thing quite well and how do you get it to do other things as well? So, you know, I had to build a special projects group and eventually I think it'd be fair to say the special projects group kind of ate a significant fraction of the company, so to speak, in the sense that, you know, what began as sort of special projects where that's where we're going to do new stuff and the mainstream is where we're going to do the, the existing stuff. Eventually it became most of what's happening is the new stuff, so to speak. That restart, for example, led to Wolfram Alpha and so on. It was almost like starting another company, except that I already had a company that was running and well-organized and so on to start from. So if I'm you know, filling in the blanks a little bit, I'm guessing Mathematica was you know, the primary driver, the proverbial cash cow, and then this new projects. And meanwhile, you're off basically writing a new kind of science? Yeah, that was my 1990s activity. It was one of these things where... I had a bunch of science ideas. I thought, gosh, it's going to take me a year to work all this stuff out. Well, I was wrong uh, because I discovered a lot more than I expected to discover. And I was probably more perfectionistic than I might have been. One mistake I made, you know, I had research assistants and things like that, but I probably could have invested more and had the project come out faster. Recently, I mean, jumping way to modern times, I kind of um, been doing this project about fundamental physics and my wife, who saw me through the whole of the new kind of science decade adventure, was like, oh, my gosh, what's going on here? And it's like, no, 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 this is going to be different. And with this one, I got through it in four months. Well, I think I got more efficient in my work. I was not as perfectionistic. And, um, you know, we were able to really launch that. And it would have been exactly four months if it hadn't been for the fact that the world decided to have a pandemic that kind of um, slowed things down. I think the, um, you know, you're asking things that, I would say that the perfectionism that I applied to new kind of science is in a sense very satisfying. You know, I use that book, it's online and things as a reference, you know, probably multiple times a day. It contains a good summary of a, a large chunk of stuff that I know and it's very well done. Could I have throttled back and been less perfectionistic? Probably. And I probably could have saved myself a bunch of years there. In terms of our company, okay, so it's sort of an interesting thing. So there's a trade-off. I mean, our company is only 800 people. You know, that's the worldwide size, very geo-distributed. We believe in automation. And so the goal is automate as much as possible. So with 800 really talented people, you know, we can produce huge amounts of stuff. And I think we're very effective at that. And it's sort of a, a you know, a succession of layers of automation, so to speak. But you know, we are mostly an R&D operation. You know, we make a living by selling products, but our company is predominantly R&D. Our sales organization is quite small, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's very inverted relative to most companies. And, you know, that's in part a reflection probably of my interests and perhaps capabilities. I mean, people look at our company and say, why aren't you, you know, 30 times the size you are? And uh, that's a good question. I mean, in other words, our products get used all over the place by lots of interesting organizations, people, you know, most universities, all this kind of thing, you know, lots of big companies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But our products could be used much more than they are. And, you know, why haven't we been kind of pounding the pavement, you know, getting sell, sell, sell more stuff? Well, good question. Ultimately, that's my fault. 
because you know my main interest is in making great products and sort of pushing the frontiers of what's possible and so on it isn't really in maximizing the commercial results i mean we've been lucky enough you know touch wood we'll hope that this year won't won't turn it around but we've been lucky enough we've been profitable every year for the last um 30 something years we'll hope for the hope this year isn't isn't I, so far it's looking okay but we'll we'll uh, it's there there are risks ahead so one of the things that is a, an interesting issue is um you know i've never had a business partner you know you might think given this picture that i should have brought in a person whose real story is only about you know i want to make this company great from a purely business point of view and i've had very good business people who work with me now and have worked with me in the past but one of the things that happened is that the company is a very complicated thing perhaps you know in the early years it would have been much easier for somebody to come in and say you know i'm going to run the business side of this company at this point the quotes business side of the company is this multi-headed creature of great complexity and you know i think that one of the things if you ask about you know in a perfect rerun of my life i would have been more effective at you know bringing in great business partners so to speak because you know the good news often when you have a company founder who's you know who's been running the thing it's like there's no room for a person to really run the business because the founder just wants to do all of that well the good news is i don't want to do it it's not my sort of driving passion in life my sort of driving passion is figuring out stuff building things and so on you know the bad news is i'm not a complete idiot when it comes to this business stuff and so my standards are very high you're describing founder syndrome i think in some ways of in these regrets possibly but i want to pick up on kind of a little bit of a thread there at the end which is you know out of mathematica wolfram alpha you've abstracted the wolfram language you know in many ways all of these things kind of represent your approach to these questions around computational thinking, complexity theory. I'm wondering if you could take a moment and weave together those pieces, because my assumption in this question is, is that that's at the heart of what you're doing. So I think it would benefit our listeners to hear some thoughts there. So, you know, the big story is what can you do with computation? Computation is both a practical thing, but it's also an idea and a paradigm and a way of thinking about things. I've made a lot of progress in science by saying, let's think about the world in terms of computation. You know, the, the tradition in the exact sciences had been, let's think about the world in terms of mathematical equations. That was a sort of a 300 year story. The thing that, you know, I've been much involved in is, well, actually, there's a, another thing you can do, which is think about the world in terms of computation and programs and so on. And actually, it's, it's really kind of remarkable in the last probably 15, 20 years, there's been sort of a transition from this 300-year dominance of mathematical equations as the way to make models of the world to, well, actually, let's use programs to do that. That's been one sort of piece is using computation as a way to think about the world not just as a, as a practical way to you know, use a word processor or something, but as a, as a fundamental way to think about the world. And the thing that one realizes is computation, sort of raw computation. We write programs for specific purposes, but imagine just writing down all possible programs from very simple ones to not so simple ones, just programs that weren't intended to do any particular human purpose. Well, you know, one of the science discoveries I made is that even very simple programs, very simple, I mean, like, what would be, uh, I don't know, less than a line of code in Wolfram language or something can do very complicated things. And it seems like that's how a lot of nature works. It seems increasingly from what we've been doing recently, that's how physics works. That's kind of how our universe is put together. That idea is an idea that sort of the natural world makes great use of. But it kind of tells one that's sort of the beginning of the realization computation is very powerful. Now the question is, there's this kind of ocean of computational capability out there. The issue is, how do we humans who have particular things we want to do, make use of that sort of ocean of computational capabilities? And that's where Wolfram Language comes in, because what I've been trying to do for many years there is provide a language that allows us humans to kind of express our thoughts in computational terms in such a way that among other things, 
we can make use of this kind of ocean of computational capability to get those things executed. So what does that mean in practice? I mean, in some ways, Wolfram language, I like to think of it these days as a sort of the first full-scale computational language. We've got these specific things that a computer does inside, and we're using a programming language to kind of specify sort of the almost bureaucracy of how all that data gets moved around and so on. But you don't expect your programming language to like intrinsically know anything about the world or intrinsically know stuff about algorithms, about how to do things. You know, and Wolfram Language knows about, I don't know, all the chemical elements and their properties. It knows about, you know, how to make a um, combinatorial packing problem and solve that. It knows about, you know, how to do linguistic analysis of some kind. It knows about, uh, you know, lots of different kinds of things. The goal has been to get a uniform integrated language that has knowledge about the world and about algorithms built into it. But most importantly, that is sort of a rich way for people to express thinking computationally. So I guess the thing that I view it as having achieved really is something that is analogous to what probably happened 400 years ago with mathematical thinking, which was before 400 years ago, if you wanted to sort of specify something mathematically, you were using English words and you were using little fragments. It was a mess. And then mathematical notation, which we all know very well, plus signs, times signs, equal signs, things like that got invented. And very quickly, people were able to kind of express themselves mathematically and things like algebra and later calculus and so on developed. And it was possible to use sort of mathematics as an underpinning for things like science and so on. And well, what we're trying to do with Wolfram Language and sort of building this computational language is the same kind of thing for expressing oneself computationally and providing kind of this notation. And the thing that I think is important about it is intended for, you know, humans to tell computers what to do. It's also intended for humans to be able to read themselves, just like you can read a math formula, you can read a piece of computational language, except, you know, with a math formula, it just sits there as a math formula. With computational language, you can say to your computer, go execute this, and it knows what to do. For example, another twist on that is, when you think about like computational contracts, right now we write contracts in sort of English or legalese or something like that, but they're basically trying to say what should happen in the world in some sense. Sort of the future of that, you know, is going to be using computational language as a way to express sort of what you want to have happen in the world. Right now we just think of programs, but we'll be thinking more of sort of computational contracts to say what should happen in the world. Like, a big important one is what do we tell the AIs we want them to do? What should be the ethics of the AIs? We need some kind of computational contract that says this is how you AIs should conduct yourselves in the world, so to speak. I love it. In many ways, I think what you're describing is that all of us need to be able to take advantage of this ubiquitous compute power without having to learn some esoteric language like C or Java or Python or whatever. My goal as a language designer is to kind of match up this sort of what computation makes possible with how humans think about things and what they want to think about, so to speak. From a career point of view, I might say that, you know, one of the little uh, sort of very obvious tips is, you know, computational X, pick an X, any field. Does computational X exist? If yes, well, maybe you're too late. If no, if there's almost nothing written about it, that's a good thing to get into because it's going to exist. And you know, one of the things we're trying to do is to make that possible and to not have people say, oh my gosh, if I'm gonna do computational X, I have to learn computer science because that's not correct. In other words, knowing how to you know, do memory allocation in a type checking and write a compiler, whatever, that's just irrelevant. You know, if you're doing computational archeology, span knowing how to do memory allocation is just not relevant. We're trying to sort of raise the level of how computation can be used and used by a much broader range of people. And, you know, it's working. For me, as a kind of a, a sort of personal career thing, it is in a sense the ideal thing for me to be doing because I've worked on a bunch of different projects. You know, we mentioned a few of them here. You know, I've worked with a lot of people. I'm, I'm interested in people. It's one of the things which makes me like being a CEO and not go crazy being a CEO. I'm interested in people. I like people. And that leads me to 
always wonder about myself. You know, what is it that I'm actually good at doing? You know, I'm, I'm often looking at very talented people who work at our company and I'm like, what should they be doing? Well, okay, answer that for myself, so to speak. And, you know, what I realized years ago now is that, you know, the thing that I do decently well is taking some pretty complicated area, breaking it down into sort of primitive parts, and then making the best primitive parts and then building it back up again with a whole bunch of engineering to make something that can be useful. Language design is an ideal example of that because it's like you take some area, I don't know, blockchain or something. It's like, what really is this? What are the sort of primitive parts that eventually become part of our computational language? And then how do we sort of build that up to be useful? And, you know, I've been fortunate, I suppose. It's one of those make your own luck type stories in some ways. But, um, you know, I'm interested in lots of different kinds of things. And I get to learn about sort of almost everything because I'm, you know, I'm trying to make this language that sort of encompasses everything. And it leads to trying to learn about all these different areas and so on is, is very interesting. As I've gone through life, I've just learned about more and more and more different things. It gives one, I suppose, both arrogance and humility doing that. Humility in the sense that I'm always learning something new. So there's always stuff I don't know about. Arrogance or something in the sense that, look, I've learned however many you know, I don't know how you count areas, hundreds of areas before, and I figured out things in a bunch of these areas. I'm going to figure out something in this area. To me, in the company and in sort of leadership there, one of the things that I consider most important is, you know, defining a notion of what might be possible. It's like I do things, I do projects that people like, okay, we're going to go find the fundamental theory of physics. Is that possible? You know, we're going to go build a Wolfram Alpha-like thing, a computational knowledge engine that can answer questions about lots of kinds of things in the world. Is that possible? Well, you know, part of my sort of thing is to figure out what might be possible and then to sort of provide the leadership to help people understand that it really is possible and often solve problems along the way to see that it's possible. I love that. And Stephen, you've never shied away from hard problems and you've mentioned this fundamental theory of physics project that you're working on. Take a moment and explain what it is and how you're approaching that, because I, I find it fascinating, the approach you're taking. So I'd love just give the, the quick rundown there. The question is, what's the universe made of? Physics, as it exists today, has been quite successful, but it's basically there are two key ideas in physics. One is quantum field theory, the other is general relativity, the Einstein's theory of gravity. Those are both 100 years old. They both had really good runs. They've allowed us to figure out a lot of stuff, but there's a lot of stuff we don't know about the fundamentals of how the universe works. As a result of sort of things I'd studied about basic science, about programs and computation and so on, I kind of got thinking about 30 years ago, could I understand what's underneath things like space and time and so on? We, we think of space as just being something that we're just told there's three dimensions of space, there's one dimension of time, that's just the way it is. But actually, if we really want to understand how physics works and how the universe works, we have to sort of go below that level. We have to say, what is space made of? What are, you know, the electron has always been said to be, you know, a point particle. What is it made of? What is it? So I had a bunch of ideas that were really quite abstract ideas. Abstract, not in the sense of vague, but abstract in the sense of divorced from things that are kind of our everyday experience. Back 30 years ago, I worked on them a bunch. Uh, during that 10-year period, I was working on new kind of science. I probably spent altogether a year or so working on applying the ideas from my new kind of science, ideas from computation, to understand fundamental things about physics. In the end, my book was like 1,200 pages long, and 100 of those pages were about applying these ideas to physics and about how the fundamental theory of physics might work. So I published this book, sell lots of copies. You know, I remember I gave a TED talk about this stuff where, you know, some part of the talk is about fundamental theory of physics, you know, a million people watch it or whatever it is. And, you know, there I am just like 10 years ago now saying, look, you know, I think I've figured out, you know, the raw material to get to a fundamental theory of physics, maybe within a decade, we'll be able to do this. Okay, so it was interesting, because I'll tell you what happened. Nothing happened. In other words, this was my book, New Kind of Science, came out in 2002. We, you know, I think like 400,000 copies of it got sold. And, you know, it, so it was a, lots of people got exposed to it. And lots of people have read it. And nobody followed up. And it's interesting because I didn't think I was ever going to get to follow up on this. I, you know, I made a little bit of an attempt in 2004. 
And um, one thing that happened was, okay, so, you know, I'd been involved in physics when I was young, and I'd been pretty successful in physics when I was young, but by 2002, I'd been out of physics for a long time. Although most physicists use the software tools we built, and certainly, you know, I stayed friends with a bunch of physicists. I wasn't in the physics business, so to speak. So 2002 comes around, my book comes out, a lot of sort of positive feedback about the book and about the ideas in it and so on from lots of fields. One field that wasn't very positive was people who worked on fundamental physics, on sort of how the universe might be put together. They were like, nope, this isn't how it works. We know we know how it works, and this isn't how it works. And in fact, it was kind of an interesting thing because, you know, I was trying to figure out, am I going to really push this project? Am I really going to put a lot of effort into trying to find the fundamental theory of physics? And, you know, I talked to friends of mine who are physicists. I don't think I managed to keep the attention of any of my physics friends for more like 15 minutes talking about the things I was working on about physics. They were just like, it isn't how we think about it. Uh, it's really hard to understand. And we don't get it type thing. I kind of, it's one of those cases, if you're in business, it's like, you've got a target market. And the question is, is your product relevant to the target market? And if the product is the fundamental theory of physics and your target market is physicists interested in fundamental physics, and they tell you, and they did, we don't want you to work on this. Please don't work on this. This is a target market that really wants what I want to do. And so, you know, I had a lot of other things I really wanted to do where happily people really wanted the things and, and they're like, thank you for doing that. And so I was like, well, I'm not going to work on this physics stuff. And I, and I would think about it from time to time. But honestly, I didn't think I was ever going to get it done. I mean, by the time I'm, uh, you know, getting older and uh, nothing much is happening and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, we've, we've run every year. We run a, a summer school. We've been doing that for 17 years now where we bring in a bunch of students from around the world and working on science and technology projects. It's been a great place for us to recruit for our company. Got a lot of lot of wonderful people from that. And also a lot of people have come to the summer school and gone on and done a lot of other interesting things in, in the world. But, um, you know, that was sort of a, always a source of, you know, every year people would come to the summer school and a few students would say, I really want to work on this fundamental physics stuff. Well, a couple of years ago, I'd been thinking about it a bit myself and I made a little bit of a conceptual breakthrough that made me feel even more energetic about um, the possibility of the ideas that I had actually working. And a couple of students who came to the summer school who were like, you've really got to work on this. And I'm like, okay, let me try. So we started last fall just seeing whether we could take the stuff I'd done 30 years, well, mostly in the mid-1990s, and you know, sort of take it to the next step. And I thought what we were going to do was just sort of package the stuff that I'd done before using this new idea that I'd had that made it a little bit cleaner and, and more elegant and sort of present it to the world and say, okay, we're going to do this open science project. Who wants to contribute to it? But actually what happened is we figured out a ton of stuff. I've never seen anything like it, actually. We had a bunch of ideas about how space and time and energy and momentum and particles and quantum mechanics and so on work. And by golly, it worked. You know, I already knew from back in the 1990s that I could derive Einstein's theory of gravity from these incredibly simple models that sort of operate underneath space and time. We figured out we could derive sort of a key, the core of quantum mechanics from that, which is sort of the other big branch of physics. And then we realized that there was some just unbelievably elegant things. Like it turns out that Einstein's equations for gravity are in some sense the same as Feynman's path integral for quantum mechanics. These are sort of two defining things for these two different areas. And they're the same. And you know, this is just so beautiful. And it's just a wonderful thing. And we realized, you know, it's like I suppose there's, you know, there's crowd pleasing things like, you know, E equals MC squared. Okay. We can derive that. That's never been possible before. It's always been something that comes out of essentially assumptions that you put in to the way that physics is set up, but we can actually derive that from something lower level. As I said, I've never seen something like this. I mean, it turns out, I think, physics wasn't as hard as it seemed to be. And you know, what happened there? Well, actually quite interesting. I mean, in the sense that a few wrong turns were made in the history of physics, I think. Like, for example, the idea of space-time, the idea that space and time are the same kind of thing. That idea is basically wrong. It was a sort of mathematical gloss on top of Einstein's theory of relativity that was 
invented probably around 1909 that became popular you know the mathematics works out nicely but at a conceptual level it's actually the wrong way to go and actually we just realized yesterday that um, there's a sort of a core assumption in quantum mechanics which people made back in the 1920s which just is very misleading i mean it's not mathematically incorrect but it's very misleading it led to people missing a bunch of things that might otherwise have been more obvious from a career point of view I find this pretty interesting because, you know, when I was a kid, I was pretty successful at physics. I got completely out of that field, worked on computation and its implications, and then basically close to 40 years later, get back into that field and manage to do a bunch of things that I think really have made very interesting progress. But the fact that I was out in the wilderness for 40 years, so to speak, I don't think it would be conceivable that I would be able to do that. It probably didn't need to be 40 years. It probably could have been 20 years. But if I'd been you know, stuck in that field all that time, there's no way I would have had the kind of outside perspective to go and do something which is you know, very paradigmatically different. The other thing that is, you know, just from a practical personal point of view, it takes a fair amount of resolve to go and you know, do a project like this full well knowing or full well thinking that it's going to be an unpopular project. Now, it turns out the thing that I didn't expect at all, that's just quite wonderful, is it turns out the reasons people were sort of saying, oh, please don't do this project. They thought that if this approach worked, that existing approaches in physics would all just get thrown away. It turns out what we discovered a few months ago is that's not correct. This approach is a different foundation, but the existing approaches kind of fit in beautifully with it. I didn't expect that. I thought it was gonna be a, an ours or theirs type thing, but it isn't. It's actually a, ours informs theirs and theirs informs ours, and it's really something quite wonderful. And that's been, you know, I think in terms of, of what will happen going forward, that's, that's one of the things that's really nice about it. It's kind of a everybody is happily married in the end type thing. From you know what we're doing in terms of this project, it's a very you know it's an open science project. So literally, we're doing you know these working sessions where we try and figure stuff out, and we're doing them as live streams. These live streams are just working sessions, so they're fully technical of you know all the complicated technical stuff and so on. And I think people have seemed to be really really finding them interesting because it is probably the first time that sort of science at the frontiers has been done in a kind of publicly visible way. You know, what we can already tell is that there are a whole bunch of students and people who say, I want to be involved. I heard this live stream. I really want to be involved in this. I want to come to your summer school or whatever else. We're on a physics adventure. We're trying to climb the sort of tallest mountain around, you know, to find, you know, what is the fundamental theory of physics. I have absolutely no doubt at this point, we're climbing the right mountain. You know, this is the right approach. We're not at the summit yet, but we're climbing the right mountain. And I think that what is sort of an interesting dynamic for the world is coming along for the ride and seeing the view and maybe contributing to the expedition is something that people are finding really interesting. We're only two weeks into this project and as, as a publicly launched thing. But for me personally, one of the big motivations here, some journalist was asking me about, you know, oh, uh, you know, why should we take this thing seriously? Blah, 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 blah. And it's like, look, I don't want to sell you this thing. I don't care. You know, I don't need this. I personally find doing this really interesting, really, you know, personally fulfilling, so to speak. But this isn't even my day job, so to speak. But on the other hand, the one thing that I, that I do care about, that I realized I care about is, you know, it's clear that a lot of people are finding this very interesting they're seeing the same kind of moment of, of realization of beauty, so to speak, that I'm seeing with this. And they're having a good time with it. And for me, this sort of sharing of something where I'm able to get other people able to have a great experience with something I've created, that to me, for whatever reason, I don't know why, I can't explain that part of myself, so to speak, you know, I really like that. And so that for me is a very satisfying part of, of the story of this project. 
I'm smiling ear to ear right now, Stephen, because like that just brings me joy. And, and I'll go there and say that what you are describing is indeed a new kind of science in many ways, right? <laughs> not not what the original book intended, but that open science is what a lot of people talk about, but doesn't really happen because you got to play in the confines. And so in many ways, you're representing the modern crowdsourced, open, free, collaborative internet, right? Yeah, right. I mean, it'll be interesting to see what happens. I mean, we, we are, you know, right now, and, you know, as the days and weeks go by, we're seeing this. I mean, a bunch of people are starting to work on real things, you know, and I won't be surprised if in another couple of months, we've got, you know, a bunch of probably younger, not necessarily younger people who've like figured out really interesting things and have, you know, written sort of what become classic academic papers and so on. And that's really cool. And I think that the fact that we're doing this, I mean, you know, one of the things that's weird about this project, this project is a deeply non-commercial project. I mean, you know, we figured out something about how the electron might be, uh, you know, a thing with the size of 10 to the minus 81 meters, okay? 10 to the minus 81 meters, the smallest anybody's ever been able to probe with particle accelerators is 10 to the minus 22 meters. It is far, far below that. You know, and we figured out a bunch of things about what happens, you know, when giant black holes merge. But there aren't enough giant black holes that you'll see that very often. So these are things that are pretty far away from our everyday experience. It'll be interesting to see there were probably some things with quantum computers that may be a little bit closer. And I wouldn't be surprised that somebody's going to figure out, based on this theory, something that is kind of an in-your-face immediate thing. For example, in particle physics, there's been sort of about, oh, what is it, maybe 60, 70 years of particle physics of, you know, things, I don't know whether if you've ever, you know, know about physics, but things like muons and kaons and pions and hyperons, all these kinds of things. There are no technological applications of those things at this point, uh, almost none. There are a few for cancer therapy, but that's using a very sort of coarse aspect of those things. The commercial application of the fundamental theory of physics is far away, although some folks from uh, NASA had contacted me about, you know, they're thinking about sort of advanced concept type things. And I was like, I always find their stuff fun because it's just so far out there. I was like, well, maybe I'll try and, you know, maybe it's time for me to figure out is faster than light travel possible. There are reasons why it may be computationally very difficult to figure that out. But there are reasons why it's not crazy to try and figure that out right now. You know, but even if it is possible in quotes, it's going to involve arrange this configuration of black holes so that this and this and this happen. Well, we don't happen to have any black holes sitting in our labs right now, so that's not kind of an immediate thing. You know, so for this project, you know, I don't know how this is going to work out because I'm funding this project. You know, it's like people working on it, and it's like there's a fair amount of effort in the outreach side of it. It's like people ask questions, you know, huge numbers of questions. It's like we're actually trying to answer them, and then. What's coming is a bunch of people who want to work on this as, you know, for research. It really is kind of cutting to the core of why should basic science be done? When you sort of think about that, it's like, who should care about basic science being done? In the end, basic science, one believes, has economic benefit, but it has economic benefit primarily, well, to the country like the U.S., sort of, a, a, you know, the biggest economy in the world type thing. It's going to have the biggest benefit from sort of basic science that gets done. But why should the world support basic science? I mean, if we've got a choice, we could put resources into some medical advance. So we could put resources into the fundamental theory of physics. It's not completely obvious. And what the ratio should be and how much, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a weird thing. I mean, when we're building... A, you know, as I mentioned with respect to our company, you know, my primary motivation is, is building the best, really interesting products. But, you know, at some level, it's like we're a company and, you know, we're making something that people are going to buy. It's sort of an interesting thing because there's this whole like, oh, why aren't you just making open source software? Well, over the years, I've, I've thought a lot about, you know, what is the right model for getting sort of innovative stuff to happen? And, you know, what I've concluded in terms of our efforts in, you know, developing software and so on, every university pretty much has a site license for our stuff so people at universities can use it. And, you know, I want to make it so that the people who are getting value from using it are the people who end up sort of supporting the continued development of it. That's where the alignment is best in terms of, uh, of motivating us to do the things that we want to do, so to speak, 
and giving the best result. It's really been an interesting problem. And I've, I've thought about it a lot. I mean, it's like we've got things like, you know, free Wolfram engine for developers and it works in this way. And we've got, you know, free Wolfram alpha and it works in this way. It's kind of a, you know, what is the business model? I mean, you know, uh, things like sort of, we'll give the software away, but our business model is we're going to make it up by providing support or we give the software away and, you know, we make it up with patent revenues or something, you know, patent licenses or whatever else. The best model I've found is, this model where, you know, the software is, if possible, bought at the highest level, as in, you know, the whole University of California system buys a site license and then everybody who's involved with it gets gets access to it. Or, you know, there's actually about to be one thing announced where a very large company is going to provide a bunch of our capabilities to a very large number of users where, you know, it's just one deal, so to speak. For this physics project, I don't understand the ecosystem. You know, I think for, for generating innovation over the last 34 years in developing software in our language, I think I've sort of, I've got a model that I think has worked and I think it's been very successful for us. I and mean, I think that we were very lucky that we never needed investment money, for example, because that's has meant that we're serving our customers, basically. You know, there isn't some side thing that is, there's not another agenda there. For this physics project, I've thought about it a fair amount and I'm kind of watching and trying to understand the signs of what's the right way to build this ecosystem to sort of drive innovation and actually get to the summit of the kind of the, what might arguably be thought of as sort of one of perhaps the tallest mountain in science, so to speak. Yeah, I love that. I mean, so much rich stuff in there. And I mean, you know, at the end of the day, Stephen, if it turned out to be on paper, Quixote-like, quest like you've spawned all these people who have been are inspired to take up this mantle right and so the worst case scenario is still way better than not doing it right yeah i think so i mean look the, the fact is how long will it take to get to the summit i don't know could take three months could take a century there could be a whole nother mountain on the other side that you can't see but it's still important to scale up that mountain Stephen, i want to be conscious of your time and finish up with uh, perhaps one or two questions. Last one, and a bit of a curveball maybe, but um, what's been the most surprising or serendipitous part of your career to date? Hmm. This physics project was pretty, pretty high on that list. I didn't think physics was going to be this easy. I mean, I really, really didn't. I mean, for 50 years, I've known about a lot of these things in physics, and I didn't know how they worked. And I have no reason to think they would be easy. I mean, I would say that in general, I'm a person who kind of likes to figure out what to do next for themselves. And the fact that a thing I'm considering doing, everybody says, oh, that's a stupid idea, or that's impossible, or whatever else, I just don't care. Yeah, I think here's, here's what I probably would say. You know, I was fortunate that I had a bunch of success very early in life, where that, I would say, gradually built a certain degree of confidence that I could kind of do all kinds of stuff. You know, I've sort of been on the spiral ever since of, well, I can do that. Okay, maybe I can do this too. And sort of happened that way because I got fairly established in, you know, a kind of a physics, which is kind of viewed as being a sort of uh, up there type type activity. And then the tech industry, which is also viewed as being kind of a, a, you know, an up there activity, so to speak. One of the issues is what is one actually going to be able to do? I mean, if somebody said to me, there are plenty of things which you know, exist in the world to potentially do, often I'd say, I'm just not interested. You know, it's just not my kind of thing. It's like you know, running some big organization or something, not my kind of thing, not interested. But you know, one of the things I think I could say is, if I look at all the projects I've done in my life, Almost none of them have ever failed. In fact, it's hard for me to think of one where I could say, this is a project where I really put effort into it and it failed. And people say, oh my gosh, look at all these projects you're doing. You're taking all these risks. You know, how can you take all these risks? For me internally, they appear to be zero risk propositions, basically. I mean, in other words, I'm always thinking, look, with this fundamental theory of physics thing, it's like, as you say, it's a good mountain to start to climb. I'm going to get a certain distance up it. You know, whether it gets to the top or not, I don't really know. But also, you know, what I realized at some point were these things where it's like, here are these crazy goals of these impossible things that nobody's ever been able to do before. And I'm going to jump in and do it. And I'm going to lead some team and I'm going to get everybody on the same page that we're going to do this. And, you know, how can it be that 
we don't misestimate. Well, you know, maybe I picked the right project, maybe. But I think more importantly, there was a certain flexibility as we were going along the way to say, well, actually, what is the essence of our original goal? This aspect of our original goal doesn't make sense anymore. Let's change it a bit. And, you know, the project that comes out is maybe a better project than the one that we first thought we were trying to do, but it, it maintains the essence of what we were trying to do. I mean, that's my best explanation for why that happens. And of course, the fact that I'm saying something like that, you know, outrageously arrogant, terrible sort of thing, but it's the very fact that that's my internal view of what's happened. And maybe there's some project I'm completely forgetting. Oh, actually, I remember there's, okay, there's one project that I put some effort into in the mid-1980s. Uh, that was a project that I basically just said after a while, I give up, I'm not going to do it. It was a project to build a C interpreter environment. And I eventually realized I just don't care enough. It's not that interesting a project. I'm just not going to do it. But I would say that you ask about serendipity. I think it would probably be that the sequence of things I've done have been successfully sort of going around the spiral. And I suppose that the typical nature of that spiral is I do some science for a while. That leads me to think about doing some technology. I do some technology that lets me do more science. And it's worked pretty well. I've done that about, what, five times or something now, that, that going around that particular loop. Yeah, I shouldn't end on this terrible note of, of just unbridled arrogance. But the thing to understand about it, and I think it's perhaps a, a useful, the good side of arrogance is confidence. If you want to do big things that are different from what people have done before, you have to have that. Because everybody's going to tell you, it's not going to work. It's a bad idea. You can't do it. It's whatever. The thing that um, sort of amuses me, okay, is that, you know, so I've done a decent number of things in my life. And people still tell me this, right? With things where it's like, look, it's clearly within range of the type of thing I could do, right? But you're still telling me, oh, you can't possibly do it. It's, you know, couldn't possibly work, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so another thing to realize is, you know, I used to think when I was younger that, you know, people would say, oh, you couldn't possibly do that. I was like, well, okay, I'm, I'm 20 years old, so it's not surprising they say that. But by the time you're, you know, 55 years old and people still say that, it's like you realize that's just the way the world works. You know, I suppose I've been lucky that nothing I've tried to do has ended up being sort of pure quixotic activity, so to speak. Um, and po probably the reason for that is the thing I mentioned, namely that you know, my original image for this or that thing, we maintained the essence of it, but maybe the details weren't quite right. You know, one had to be flexible about it. I mean, that's beautiful. I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's follow that curiosity, which is, I, I think, definitely one of the themes of the show. Stephen, last question. You've highlighted so many great things in terms of projects and capabilities, both at the company and the personal level. Where can our listeners dig in more with you, follow along, personal website, social media, you, you name it, spit out the links? <laughs> okay. Well, I think stephenwolfram.com is probably the place to start from. And then I'm a reasonably regular Twitterer. Another thing people might find interesting is the live streams that we do. Uh, right now, those are mostly about the physics project, but um, at other times, perhaps of interest to people involved in development type things. We started about, what was it, a year and a half ago, live streaming a bunch of our internal software design meetings at the company, because uh, I thought they were really intellectually interesting. And I thought, gosh, you know, our users might find them interesting. As it turns out, there's a big payoff, which I hadn't figured out, which is lots of people making great suggestions and it's sort of the instant focus group but people might find that interesting it's uh, it's um i'll be getting back to more of those in the in the coming weeks because that's my day job of basically designing our computational language uh live on these live streams it's a uh, probably the only place i don't know if there's any other place you can get this i mean this is kind of um a real life software architecture that you can one of the things i thought was really neat and I, again i hadn't really internalized this would happen is people who watch these things being designed and then a new version of our product comes out and they're like, wow, I saw that thing. You know, I saw when they figured out how to do that. And, you know, maybe I suggested some piece from the, you know, text chat or whatever. So anyway, that's another thing to follow. That's, we, we do that on Twitch, Facebook, and YouTube. Gives people a little personal connection back to this, you know, bits and bytes in the computer. So Stephen, this is been amazing i can't thank you enough for joining me on the show today it was so great to have you thanks for a nice chat 
Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Developmentor podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Even better, please leave us a review. If you want to hear older episodes, leave feedback, or sign up to be a guest, please visit us at developmentor.com. If you'd like to support the show, there are three ways you can help out. One, make a donation via Patreon. Two, if you're a software engineer looking for your next gig and wanting to practice interviewing, use our referral link to the interviewing.io platform. And three, buy your next tech book from Manning Publications using our affiliate link. All of those links can be found at developmentor.com support dash us. That's S-U-P-P-O-R-T dash U-S, all one word. Most importantly, if you like this show, please tell your friends. Referrals are the lifeblood of any podcast. Finally, we here at Developmentor hope that each and every episode helps you move one step closer to finding your path.